Do you seek the freedom to pursue greater meaning and purpose in your life? Is there something that you're passionate about that you'd like to support by giving time, talent, or money? Do you seek a level of financial freedom to live an ideal life as you uniquely define it? Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to helping you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. Welcome, friends, to the Money and Meaning Show. My name is Jeff Bernier. I am your guide on this adventure as we help you discover what matters most and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with your goals. We combine excellence and wealth management with the pursuit of meaning and purpose in your life. Now, as your guide, I have to warn you, this is not a trek around Disney World with matching t-shirts. This is more like an adventure through the Amazon or even a summit up, of, up Everest. You know, so I guess what I'm saying is this can be a really exhilarating experience, but it can also be full of challenges and peril. And it could be death, metaphorically speaking financially speaking, emotionally speaking. So in my day job, I'm the founder and president of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, a wealth management firm in the Alpharetta, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta. So welcome and thanks for joining us today. In 1966, Robert Kennedy made a speech and he quoted what I think he thought was a Chinese proverb. I've come to learn that like most quotes that we see, there's always debate about what they really are. But he said, may you live in interesting times. And I know you've probably all heard this, and I guess you would all agree, we are in fact living in interesting times. And of course, you know, I guess any student of history might point out that if you study history and look at things that have happened throughout the ages, you know, in some ways, all times are interesting in their own unique ways. You know, as we talk about it in the financial markets or the capital markets, you know, John Templeton used to always uh, caution that the four more, uh, most dangerous words in investing is this time it's different. Meaning all times have their unique challenges. Um, you know, investors are rewarded for allocating capital in the capital markets and there's always things that are going on that make those times uncertain and difficult. But we are certainly living with some unique challenges today as investors. Some are making the case that this may be the hardest investment envi uh, environment ever. Seems a little hyperbole, but we'll chat about that a bit today. So to explore a few of these, I thought I would invite my friend and guest on today, David Holstrom. David's joining us. Uh, we've had David on in the past. He's a, a collaborator, a friend, and a really smart guy. Uh, I've known David for a long time. He is the founder and chief investment officer at Financial Architects uh, here in the North Atlanta area. Uh, he runs his wealth management company, but he's also a consultant to our industry. He consults with a lot of firms like mine. He teaches a lot of classes uh, to accountants and certified financial planners. Uh, I've known David, I don't know, uh, probably 20 years now, I'll bet, through various industry associations, and I always enjoy spending time with him. He's a chartered financial analyst, a certified investment management analyst, a chartered alternative investment analyst, a certified financial planner, 
a certified private wealth advisor and a chartered financial consultant. Now, I read all those on purpose because uh, he is passionate about learning and sharing information. So, David, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here, Jeff. I usually shortcut that list by just <laughs> saying I'm credentialed beyond usefulness. <laughs> okay, good. So, you know, I, he has to have like uh, a business card that's like a foot long to get all of his credentials, but he's, but he's a smart guy. And, you know, I don't think having known you, David, you can speak to this if you want, but I get the sense that this is not work for you learning. No, I, I actually enjoy it. And, yeah. um, if you're learning the stuff anyway, I mean, this sounds sort of obnoxious, but it, the, the exams are all not that hard, right? I just right. Sh- sort of show up and take it. And, <laughs> right. and the last uh, bunch that I've gotten, I haven't actually done any prep. I've just signed <laughs> up and, and taken the exam. Right. Cause you turn, already, turns yeah. out I knew the stuff that was on there already. Yeah. So. Per- perfect. Perfect. So you and I share a similar investment philosophy and, and, you know, you and I have, I had a lot of discussions around investments. You've helped us construct our portfolios internally for some time. So I just thought it might be kind of fun for the audience to kind of go behind the curtain or backstage and hear about some of the conversations you and I have as we evaluate how to allocate investor capital. So I thought I would just kind of ask you a few questions and then we could have a little chat around that as it relates to investment management, uh, retirement income investing, those kinds of things. So the first thing is I just give me a big picture on your investment philosophy or your investment approach. Yeah. So like you, we're very academically oriented. Um, and so I frequently tell, I do a lot of teaching, as you mentioned, of advisors, and I tell them that I would recommend they do it in two steps. Uh, the first step is what's the mathematically, academically correct answer for how you do something. And in most of the f- field, there's there are right answers. The second step, though, is what can the client tolerate emotionally and psychologically? And you may need to temper the first one with the second one. Uh, what annoys me about much of the industry, and I think it probably annoys you a little bit too, is they start with the second step. What does the client want? They sell them that, and they never even do the first step. They just It's right. a lot of salespeople. Not uh, driven by goals or objectives or, com- right. or, or, or or comfort level. Right. Somebody rolls into their office and says, I heard Bitcoin's good. They say, well, I'll sell you some of that, you know, and, right. and charge commission or whatever. Right. And, um, you know, we don't do that. Uh, we, we do like you do. You know, here's what you need to do. Now, for some reason, you can't sort of stand that. Um, we can temper that somewhat. Right. Okay. Well, I have a theme or a... I have a, a um, I, I guess, a mindset that I came into our discussion today with. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a loaded question and, and just interesting to hear what you say. So um, I say frequently that expected returns are largely driven by prices, by current prices. Prices tell you something about expected returns. So I'm just curious if you agree with that statement or how you might change that statement. Yeah, I, I sort of do agree with it, although um, you and I both use a, a fund management firm that sure remain nameless on this podcast, <laughs> that they, they say this over and over and over again. They get up in seminars and they say, you know, it's prices matter, prices matter, you know. Right. Um, and I always want to raise my hand. I've never done it because I'm not this quite this obnoxious, but I'm close to that obnoxious. <laughs> I want to raise my hand and say the price is $12.73. Tell me about it. That's, there's no information in the price whatsoever if you're looking at just the price. What they mean is the price compared to the book value or the price compared to the earnings or the price compared to the cash flow or price compared to some fundamental. But it's as meaningless to say prices matter as it is to say book value matters or earnings matter. It ma- the ratio relative. of the two matters. It's, it's relative, relative to right. something. What are you paying? And, you know, there is a price at which the worst company ever 
the stock is a great buy. Yeah. And there's a price. The cigar, the cigar butt. That's right. And there's a price at which the best company ever is a horrible buy because it's just too expensive. Right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, two thoughts came into my head when you said that. First of all, was the cigar butts. That was a term that I guess Benjamin Graham may have used, uh, that Warren Buffett obviously used as his disciple, that, you know, they're really companies that are flawed, but their price is low enough. The expected return could be high because their price is so low and they're, right. but they still have to have earnings in a future. Right. And what, which you is know, your point. And it you know what that's relative. referring to, right? This is term cigar butts. No. Yeah. Well, throwing the cigar butt on the ground. I'm no, guessing. It, it means you're walking along the sidewalk and you look down and there's a cigar butt, but I think there's two puffs oh, in it. Oh yeah. It's not quite dead <laughs> right. yet. It still has some value. Right. <laughs> right. So, so the, the idea here is price relative to earnings or sales or book value is helpful, right. but price alone is not enough. That's right. And, you know, and the way I thought about that, too, is I was just trying to think about the analogy. It's like, you know, if you were a farrier, which was the guy that put horseshoes on mm-hmm. and you had a farrier business, the price of your business went down in the early 1900s. Right. But the fundamentals were so bad it's not a really probably a good buy. Right. So so it's got to be relative to earnings. Right. I mean, I, I use it a lot with um, you know, like Destin Real Estate, Destin, Florida Real Estate, Feeding Frenzy, you know, back in the early 2000s. And, you know, if you bought the house then, your expected return was low because you bought it at the top. Right. Um, anyway, t- terrific. So I think we're on the same page here. Mm-hmm. Just um, so in, in building plans for retirement, um, how do you determine the the uh, expected return that you're going to use in your financial planning inputs or in your capital market assumptions, because if you're trying to make projections about the future, you've got to use something right. as an assumption about what these capital assets are going to earn. So how do you go about that? Right. And that's a great question because a lot of advisors and even more so individuals, but even advisors do it, they, they very often look at history and say, well, it did this in the past. I'm going to assume it does that in the future. The problem with that is if you look at, for example, bonds in the early 80s and they had double digit yields and you say, well, I'm going to assume bonds earned double. I've looked back at history and I've assumed bonds are going to have really high returns from here. Well, that's obviously silly. It's also silly on stocks. It's just less obvious. Right. You know, if stocks have run up a bunch in valuation, in other words, the price you're paying for those fundamentals is really high. Right. You that raises the historical returns that does not at all raise your expected returns. It actually lowers it. So you need some way to sort of anchor your expectations and you would do that with, with the fundamentals. So, um, and we can, we get into that. So, so when you build your capital market assumptions for your projections, Mm -hmm. you're using the current yield and price and fundamentals. Right. On the current, current yields, primarily on bonds and the, and on stocks, you're looking at the at the fundamentals to see, you know, where what can we reasonably expect going forward, and we can get into the okay. You well, know, let some me technical stuff on well, that if you want. Well, let me just ask you a very simple question. So historically, go, going back mm-hmm. to history, um, you know, the real return, which is to say the after inflation return of stocks, is around seven, right, somewhere in that range, ten gross, ten before inflation, approximately seven after inflation, and bonds are around two. Right. After inflation. So what assumptions might you make about those kinds of broad asset classes in today's environment? Well, those numbers are interesting. There's actually an academic um, debate about what's called the equity risk premium, which is the difference between those two numbers. Why should you make five or six percent? And Jeremy Siegel has a book that's been very popular for 20 years now right. on stocks for the long yep. run, where he says it's sort of six and a half. You can look at a bunch of that's periods. the number. Yeah. And he he cherry picks the periods to make it look like six and a half all the time, you know, but it is in that his, 
that range historically for the U.S., although you have some variation. You have more variation than he implies. Right. Um, but the that looks like an outlier. You know, you're taking— The U.S. looks like an outlier. The U.S. looks like an outlier. Not a huge outlier, but it's certainly one of the better cases. We, yeah. We were, 100 years ago, uh, more of an emerging market. You know, prior to World War One, right. the U.K. was the developed country. Right. Um, and we became the sole remaining superpower. So to look at that history and say, well, let's assume that repeats— uh, is probably not the smartest thing to do. So there's much better data that looks at developed countries in general, um, and you have uh, you know worse cases. We're, not that it's a disaster, but I think that the the four or five percent equity risk premium is more reasonable. The other um, literature on this is out of the the psychology area, which says how much should people demand for risk? Right? There's risk models and right. risk aversion measures right. and so forth. Um, and nobody can come up with any model that says stocks should pay that much to compensate for their risk. So it looks right. like over the last century or so, U.S. investors have been overcompensated for the risk they took in stocks, right. which is great. Uh, but it's not clear that they they expected the returns they got. They just turned out to be lucky. Right. So I think haircutting the historical data a little bit makes sense, both from a global historical perspective, yeah. a psychological perspective, and also the fundamentals today don't support it. Right. Either. So if your internal financial planner was doing a projection, what number would you put in there for a stock portfolio in making a promise to a 60-year-old who's retiring? Yeah, I right now I tend to use four uh, percent real, something okay. like that. Yeah, so four after inflation for right. stocks, right? For stocks, uh, and about zero after inflation for bonds. Okay, so that's um, gonna that's so gonna four percent spread seems reasonable to me. Now, of course, this nobody knows. I mean, I, my, it's an educated guess, but it's still a guess. Yeah, Do you, and you think the relationship between the the expected return of stocks and bonds is similar? In other words, the difference between the two. So compressed expected returns, yes. but more return bearing a shareholder than a lender. Yes. So you're still getting an equity risk premium. 4% is, is not trivial to right. get compensated for the risk. And um, I think it's probably, like I said, the historical number is more like six. I think four might be the number here. Um, and I think that that's still a, a very nice premium to get. Yeah. Well, so because of that, um, someone that we both read, I think, a guy named Ben Carlson, has a really good blog called A Wealth of Common Sense. And he wrote a piece recently that said this could be the hardest investment environment ever because he was, I think, alluding to what we're just talking about, lower expected returns in many asset classes because bonds aren't cheap either. Right. You know, some real estate assets, aren't. there aren't many there aren't as many places where you look like you've got opportunity, although you may you may disagree. And then you've also got um, a lot of government intervention. You know, we're trying to manage the market more, perhaps. You know, we've got, you know, potentially inflationary pr uh, pressures, maybe. Um, so do you agree with his statement that this might be the hardest investment environment ever? Or uh, tell me your thoughts on that. I think yes and no. I agree in the sense that for a naive investor, it's probably really hard because what the naive investor does is they buy large domestic company stocks that they've heard of. And those are all expensive, right? Right. Uh, but if you're with a quality financial advisor that is diversifying you internationally emerging markets, those are much more attractively priced. Um, and also tilts to value, which we can get into if you'd like. I know you and I both right. are believers of that. Right. You probably have a premium. That factor looks particularly cheap right now. So the, the extra return I would expect to get from that going forward is very nice. Yeah. But if you're just sort of buying stuff, 
naively, which in the academic literature, naive doesn't have a negative connotation, just means you don't know anything. Right. Uh, it doesn't mean you're an idiot. Right. <laughs> but right. The, the naive view is, well, I don't know what else to do, so I can buy the S&P 500. That Bec- because it's done really well in the right. last 10 years. And that probably is not a, a great solution going forward. So in that sense, Ben Carlson is right. Buying the S&P 500 would be very challenging to have retirement work out. On the other hand, I've also seen even in you know professional literature, people say just screwy things. There's um, people out there touting insurance products who say that you know the old you and I have talked about the four ex- percent right. uh, withdrawal rate right. um, from portfolio that it's now two or it's two and a half. So you should buy annuities, you should buy permanent life insurance or, or something, um, and that's silly too because even at zero real return. No real return whatsoever in a portfolio. If you have a 30-year horizon, which is how those studies are usually right. done, um, you're at three and a third percent, right? right. In other words, you're, if you're just consuming Zero. one 30th of your capital every you'll year. You'll never outlive it you'll, right. for 30 years. Right. So um, the, the the sustainable withdrawal rate cannot be below three and a third percent unless you're assuming negative real returns. returns. Yeah. In which case, you should just give up by tips and be done. Right. Because you can get the, you know. Right zero real yeah so so but in this so um you know i i guess in this environment these are challenges but um but i guess what i'm hearing you say they're not new challenges they're not new challenges um the the late 90s was the same type of situation the difference between now and the late 90s is in the late 90s uh U.S. growth dramatically outperformed. Everybody jumped on the bandwagon and so forth. But it was a huge outperformance over really about four or five years. Right. What we've had now, which you and I are facing with our clients, is we've had similar magnitude of, of uh, underperformance for a well-diversified portfolio that's intelligently constructed. Um, so the, the, the total magnitude is about the same. But it's, it's longer. It's been longer. It's like Chinese yeah. water torture. You yeah. know, when is this going to be over? So yeah. I don't I don't know whether it's easier to keep clients on board um, on on track when it's only been a couple of years. Just hang on. It'll get there. But it's a huge, huge magnitude really fast. Yeah. Or if it's more challenging when like every year you're telling them, hang on, it'll be fine. Right. You know. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. <laughs> eventually. Yeah. We're looking looking for for that time. Uh, so what do you worry about? What, what do you worry about as you look at the landscape? And, and well, that is what I worry challenges. about is, is keeping the clients on the bus. You know, you're, yeah. you're trying to get to a destination of being able to achieve financial independence, not having to work for monetary reasons. Uh, it's most people's goal. And in this environment, I worry about people jumping ship at precisely the wrong time and right. saying, you know, we've been paying you to run a well-diversified portfolio that has fixed income in it and it has international in it and it has value tilts in it. And I would have done much better had I just bought the SP 500. Right. Now that the S&P 500 is at record highs and those spreads are particularly wide, let me bail out and just go do that on my own. And when the I, risk I is the highest. I think that is just yeah. ill-timed. I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen in the market. And maybe it goes another 10 years of, of being sort of, it gets more extreme. That's not impossible. Right. But it's unlikely. Right. Right. Good, 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 good comments there. Thank you so much for that. So, so in terms of constructing a retirement income portfolio, what should investors do differently, if, if anything? Well, you mentioned earlier uh, that the, the the equity risk premium we talked about is about the same, but the the returns are lower because right. even though inflation is lower, that sort of starting yield is even lower than that, right? right. So even though historically we've had about three percent inflation, it looks like now it's probably going to be two if the Fed gets what they want. Um, so you'd expect sort of everything to be one percent lower, but it looks like it's another percent or two lower than that, right? Um, so there's three rational responses to that scenario, 
And unfortunately, there's no math way to sort of tell clients which thing to do. It's um, really a discussion. So you could say, well, I'm still getting the same equity risk premium. So the, the amount I get paid for taking risk is similar to what it's been historically. Right. Or what I would have expected historically, right. even though it came in a little bit better. Right. Therefore, I do the same as I've always done. Don't change the portfolios. If you were 60-40 stock bonds before, you should be 60-40 stock bonds now. Right. The other way to look at it is, well, I'm no longer getting rewarded as much for taking risk. So I, I'm, I'm expecting 4% equity risk premium for buying stocks and it, and um, 6% nominal, but it used to be sort of 10% nominal. Right. Um, so therefore, because I'm getting paid less, I want less stocks. So I'm going to put more in fixed income. And that's rational. Um, the the third way you could look at it is the, exactly the opposite is I need a certain rate of return to be able right. to retire comfortably. Right. And I'm not getting there anymore because returns are, are expected to be lower. Right. So I need more stocks. Right. So, I mean, it sounds like I'm sort of avoiding an answer, but really you could, you could make a cogent argument for stay the same, get more conservative or get more aggressive. Interesting. And, yeah. it, and it, I think it comes down mostly to the client's um, temperament. You know, can they stand Ability. psychology yeah. wise to be able to, um, uh, go more aggressive right. and also their financial situation. If you've got lots and lots and lots of money relative to your need, and this is something I think people don't appreciate. Um, it's not about how much money you have. It's about how much money you have relative to how much you need. Right. Uh, you and I both have had clients, right. I'm sure that had lots and lots of money, but they're destined for utter failure. Right. Because Spending. their consumption rate yeah. is just insane. Right. Uh, and, and I've had clients, I'm sure you've had clients who don't have much they have modest amounts but they just don't need anything right. they're not misers content. they're just content yeah. right and they're going to be fine so if you're if your resources relative to your need are, are high right then you could probably get more conservative uh, but if they're low which in most americans that's sort of what they are they're not quite on track for retirement right uh you can make a case for sort of going for the hail mary pass i need more more, more risk equity. to get there well that's what jeremy siegel argues and something i read recently was that in a lower expected return world, you've got to have more of the higher return asset class. So he's arguing, or at least in this one commentary, that the 75 equity is what retirement investors might ought to consider as opposed to 60% equity. Yeah. But I'm gathering you disagree in general. Well, yeah, I would yeah. argue, I mean, it depends on the individual, um, but I would much rather clients increase their savings rate then they increase their risk taking. Yeah, because we're all rock solid stomach wise <laughs> in a good market. Right. Yeah. Right. And Sa don't want to make the big higher mistake. savings rates just. Yeah, you put out helps. two things this week that I thought were really good. I'm sorry for interrupting. That's One right. was speaking to what you alluded to earlier about stocks for the long run. Mm -hmm. Uh, not always so. Right. So be careful about that assumption. Um, but the other one you put out that was really fascinating was about savings rates and the rates of return and how much more impact additional savings have over another percentage or two return. Right. Yeah. The example I did, which I don't have the numbers in front of me, but roughly if you, if your savings rate was 10% and you doubled it to 20 versus if your, if your rate of return was six versus 12, even over a 20 year time horizon, doubling your savings rate beats doubling your rate of return as far yeah. as how much you have. Again, now, if you, I sort of cherry pick the numbers to get there, because if you go out 30 years, it, it of course reverses because you have so much time. But right. what people don't realize, and I think a lot of the sort of younger investors that may be trading on Robinhood today or whatever, 
um, they get so focused on their return right. and they don't focus on their saving. If you have no money saved, it literally doesn't matter what return <laughs> you earned because it's on no capital. Right. So for the first 20 years of your life, it's vastly more important to max out your 401k and other savings vehicles than it is to focus Worry on, about- did I nail the investment allocation? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you see that all the time. You see people that are obsessing about beating the market, right. but they haven't saved anything. So it doesn't really matter <laughs> right. if they beat the market or not. So, uh, you know, uh, inflation is a big topic that's coming up mm-hmm. recently with, uh, you know, a lot of the news. Any worries about um, future inflation rates and directions of, and obviously I don't forecast. I don't know if you do, but tell me your thoughts on that. Yeah, we, we don't forecast. I, I wrote a newsletter uh, way back. I said, I, I feel like we should have a tagline, financial architects forecast free since 2000 or something <laughs> right. like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, clients want you to forecast. They want predictions. And I try desperately not to make any, and I try not to even have any because it leads you to want to do things that I think are, are imprudent with portfolios. Yeah. So, you know, I have an opinion like everybody else does what stock market's going to do, interest rates and inflation or whatever. But heaven forbid I should bet a client's money on that. Right. Because the track record of experts in general. Not great. Is not great. Right. Um, it's just it's random, basically. Right. Um, so I'm worried about inflation, but I'm worried about it in the sense that I'm always worried about it. Gotcha. Um, I'm not more worried about it now. Um, and I've always positioned portfolios. So let me sort of do a, a little digression on the difference between salespeople and, and a good financial advisor. Um, and it also correlates with people with different levels of wealth, I think, too. People who have less money are attracted to a sales type person who says or implies, I know, or I've got a guy who knows, usually a guy, uh, what's going to happen. So I'm going to get you in on the thing. I'm going to get you into the market, out of the market at the right times. So I'm going to buy the hot sector or the hot stock or, right. or whatever. Right. Um, and that is attractive to people who don't have much capital, right? They have $10,000 and they want to double it right. you know, by next Tuesday. Right. And they, they want that guy. Right. Um, people who have accumulated capital would like their advisor to sort of not mess it up. Right. And that's, I think, both well, you and do. I run practices yeah. that way. Um, so uh, a poor quality advisor says, here's what I think is going to happen. I'm going to bet your portfolio on it. High quality advisor says, here's the things that can happen, not only in the markets, but in your life. And we're going to arrange your situation as best we can so that regardless of which future we get, you're still okay. Uh, you know, if, if right. you have premature death, somebody's got life insurance. If you've got disability, you've got disability insurance. If they have uh, a need for long-term care and they don't have enough money to self-fund it, you bought long-term care insurance or recommended right. they do. Um, and also on the portfolio side, if there's inflation, you're fine. If there's deflation, you're fine. If stocks crash, you're fine. If stocks skyrocket, that, that one's pretty easy. You're usually fine. Uh, <laughs> right. But, you know, in every scenario, you should sort of be okay. Right. Uh, without predicting which scenario we get. Right. And so I guess the way that relates to the tax question was you're always building strategies that are defense. I'm sorry about the inflation question. You're always building strategies that have defense against higher inflation or rising prices. That's right. In the strategies. Right. That's one of the risks that you're trying to um, have some protection against. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. In a diversified, constructed portfolio. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And I can elaborate on that if you'd like. That's but, good. That's okay. good. So let's let's move on here as we as we wrap up here shortly. I I can't. Uh, you know, we've already alluded to uh, relative returns and 
the S&P 500 versus some of these other factors. So, you know, you and I are both big believers in the evidence uh, in research. And so we built these portfolios that tilt to certain factors that over time indicate higher expected returns. And so I'll just, is that, you know, I mean, again, we're, we, we've had a, a rough road here recently with some of these factors. Mm-hmm. Any changes to your strategy um, in, in that regard? No, we really haven't. Um, I, I did do a, a letter to clients uh, a while back, uh, a couple months ago, and I, I don't do these often. I, it, it's, I don't know, five or 10 years between these types of, of things. So yeah. I don't want somebody to think I'm doing this all the time. But um, I said that I'm the most excited about our allocations compared to a general market, Just like market S&P 500, yeah. right, than I have been in 20 years. Right. Um, and I'm not... Not, I'm not excited about the market, so I'm trying. I try to say this sort of carefully so people didn't misread it. I'm not saying that everything is rosy and we're all going to make a fortune. I'm saying compared to your neighbors, yeah, <laughs> right. Those naive portfolios, um, a well constructed portfolio right now is particularly that is um, weighted to some of the factors that have not right. performed as well recently, meaning their expected return going forward is better. That's right, and yeah. including international and so forth. Emerging markets, yeah. international yeah. and so forth. So you, you were going to reference a story about someone in, in concentrated risk. Yeah. Tell me, tell me that. Well, um, it, it's the story I was going to tell was uh, about sort of frame of reference risk. Yes, okay. Which is your phrase, I think. You yeah. may have stolen it from somebody else. I'm sure else, I did. But I stole it from you because <laughs> I love that. It's because people really do pay attention to on the news. They saw the SP 500 did whatever last year, and how come my portfolio didn't do that? Right. Um, it, although, interestingly, they tend to be pay more attention when their portfolio is behind that than when it's ahead of that. Right. Um, but the story I was going to tell was years ago, I had uh, I was teaching a class of, of aspiring certified financial planners, and one gentleman in the class was older. He was a career changer. He was getting a CFP, and I was teaching the capstones. They'd been through the whole thing, and we were talking about how to construct a portfolio because they, they teach you all the theory in the investment class. You learn a lot of formulas, but when it comes to how do you actually do this, they really don't Not do it. So I yeah. would do a little digression on here's how you actually do it. Um, and we were talking about how much international you should have in a portfolio. And this guy, like really smart guy, I think he was had been a CFO of a company and, and so forth. Uh, he said um, that he had gotten his first couple of clients. He was just like working out of his house and, and a couple of his neighbors knew he was doing this. And um, he had allocated the stocks 50-50 U.S. international because market cap, market cap weighted. Yeah. Um, and I went through and I, I won't do it long here. I'll do the short version. But I basically said that's probably a mistake. Uh, that is mathematically correct and psychologically wrong because there's virtually no clients that will stay with that through an, an underperformance of international relative <laughs> That's right. domestic. Yeah. And um, a few years after that, uh, he actually, I saw him at a financial planning association meeting, he came up to me, he said, I got to shake your hand. And I had completely forgotten about the class. Right. And he said, I would have lost all of my clients last year. I don't remember <laughs> what year it was, but right. there was massive underperformance of international versus the U.S. Right. And his clients were screaming at him and he was at like 20%, not 50%. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that frame of reference risk is very, very real. And, you know, you and I think are facing it with our clients right now that, you know, the, the, the thing that you would have done sort of naively, as I mentioned earlier, right. would have done better. But right now, that's a particularly bad decision, I yeah, think. Yeah, risky. Yep. yep. Okay, well, let's, let's try to end on a positive note. Let me, let me just ask a broad question. Are you an optimist or a pessimist, do you think, by nature? And, well, I, and I know there's a Morgan Housel quote that we've used both. <laughs> right. You, what is that I was quote? just about to pop use that it. quote off. Please use it. Morgan Housel has a quote that you should invest like an optimist, but save like a pessimist. And, yeah. and I am all over that. I think that really, yeah. really, really nails it. 
Um, so for personally, for our firm, uh, everybody in the firm has sort of a minimum 25% savings rate. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. We think that's, that's yeah. appropriate. Yeah. Uh, we actually have a 25% so so match on so the retirement plan. So you're pessimist in terms of your savings. You, on your savings. You're putting a lot of acorns, uh, you know, off to the side. For That's the right. And we have a 25% uh, match on the, or not not match, 25% contribution on the 401k. Right. Uh, not that we're paying wages that are higher than we think are, I mean, we want to be fair and, and generous, but they're not crazy high. They're not right. 25% higher than our peers. Right. So the base pay is, is a little bit lower. Uh, but what that does is it weeds out people who are short-term thinkers are not oriented towards savings because we, we, both our clients and our staff, we want everybody yeah. sort of yeah. wired the same way. Yeah. But in terms of the world and the capital markets, you're a long-term but optimist. But you're a long-term optimist. You mean, you, you yeah. don't, you don't hunker down in, in CDs. You, you have some stocks. You yeah. diversify well. Yeah. The, the other paper I sent out this week that you mentioned, there was two things I sent. The second one was an international study about over, how over even 30-year time horizons you've had to Developed markets. I think the number in that paper was about 12% of the time over 30 years, you didn't have a real return. Right. So you didn't keep up with inflation, even with a 30 year horizon. And people don't think that they think if I hold on long enough, I'll be fine and I'll make a lot of money. No, that's why you diversify. There are in individual developed markets, you can have very long periods of time where you do not even beat inflation. Right. Uh, but if you diversify, your odds go up. Yeah. Okay. But in terms of being an optimist, you you know you read Factfulness a while back. Right. I think the book that we reviewed here on this pod podcast, talking about obviously that the world is getting better. World is getting. We better. just don't know it because it's not in the news. It doesn't make headlines. Well, the other thing and, is that the bad things tend to be sudden events. Yeah. And the good news tends to be gradual. Yeah. You know, you you don't get um, very many days where they announce we cured cancer. Right. What you get are you know, thousands of days in a row where the ability to cure cancer got a little bit better. Right. Um, and so it, it doesn't make the news and it doesn't impact us. And so most people are really, really miscalibrated on how bad the world is. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's awesome. I, I've read a couple books recently that I, I thought will have the same theme, which were uh, 10 global trends every smart person should know, which again, it just shows you long-term research on things like, you know, poverty and clean water and healthcare issues. And, and again, it, it, if you read that a little bit every day, it will make you an optimist, a rational optimist in terms of the global, global trends. Um, so at any rate, this has been great, David. I really appreciate it. I know you, uh, you know, you have always been a resource to us and to the industry and we appreciate it. So if someone wanted to find David Holstrom in your firm, what's the best way to reach out to you? Yes. The, the website is www.financialarchitects with an S LLC.com. That's a terribly long domain name, but there was not <laughs> shorter ones available. So financialarchitectsllc.com. And I have on there some newsletters if, and especially if you like the technical stuff, I have a quarterly uh, piece that uh, is for financial professionals that is long and, and goes into a lot of weird things that I find interesting. Uh, and I sort of started <laughs> by accident uh, 20 years ago where I emailed a couple of buddies and it got out of hand and there's thousands Here of people you are. on that list now. Yeah. So uh, if, if any listeners are more sort of inclined toward getting in the weeds, that may be one that you would be interested in. Okay, terrific. Well, thank you so much, David, for joining us. And again, thank you all for joining us again for the Money and Meaning Show. I hope you found this as time well spent. Please join us next month where 
Uh, I'll have uh, my friend and guest on Mark Danzi uh, of White's Path Consulting, where we'll talk about meaning and purpose in your careers, and you'll want to join us for that. So thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to check out past episodes of the show, as well as my blog, you can check us out at www.tandemgrowth.com forward slash resources. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for listening to The Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to help you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jeff or comments on the show, feel free to reach out to us at moneyandmeaning at tandemgrowth.com. Or you can find us on the web at www.tandemgrowth.com. Jeff Bernier is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This show is a production of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC. All information discussed is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as specific financial, legal, or tax advice. Listeners should consult an attorney or tax professional regarding their specific legal or tax situation. Listeners should not rely on the content of this podcast as the basis for any investment decisions. A professional advisor should be consulted and or independent due diligence should be conducted before implementing anything discussed in this show. While information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information prepared by any unaffiliated third party, such as guests on the podcast, and takes no responsibility for the same.